Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Joseph Hargrave, Joseph of Arab's global foresight leader. In this capacity, he's responsible for the delivery of foresight services and projects globally, working across Arab's Americas, Australasia, East Asia, Europe, and UKI MEA regions. Joseph's clients and collaborators include Arab leadership teams, as well as external organizations from a broad range of sectors. Current focal areas include Arab city strategies, digital transformation program, and sustainable development plan. He leads several of Arab's thought leadership programs, including Cities Alive and the Future of Series. Really excited to have this conversation and welcome to the deep dive. Hi, Philip. Great to be here. All right. You know, we had the opportunity to have a little bit of a precursor conversation before recording the show, and that was actually in December, Mm -hmm. if I recall correctly, which seems like an eternity ago, um, (laughs) even though we've just turned into the new year. And in that conversation, I did share that Arab is an organization, a company that I've long admired because of how I perceived as an outsider their thoughtfulness around foresight and cooking that practice into the way they do all of their work. And so I was really looking forward to this conversation because it's my opportunity as a fan, if one can be a fan of an organization, to kind of peek behind the curtains and get a sense for your perspective and your work. And so having said that, what I want to start with is really getting your perspective on what is foresight and why is it so important to organizations? So we're kind of starting at the ground floor here. Yeah, and starting with a difficult question, Philip, but I'll do my best to dive into that. Look, foresight or future studies, there's a few different terminologies for it, and they all kind of mean the same thing, I guess, is about a structured exploration of the future. And I say structured quite purposefully because what you're really trying to achieve is to understand and explore the future to some degree and then make sense of it. And by make sense of it, I mean, okay, what does that actually mean for my organization, my project, or my area of responsibility? So it is largely about change, about understanding change, and then about sense-making. So trying to contextualize change within the specifics of an organization. And of course, if you think about the purpose of that, then, you know, the purpose of thinking ahead in a structured way and what it could mean to an organization, you quickly get to the realization that could be all kinds of strategic purposes of this. Naturally, as business leaders and people who are operating within economies and markets that are subject to constant change anyway, we are all to a degree used to thinking about the future. And it's, for many of us, part of our job whether you're in a kind of product development function, an innovation function, a research function, or a strategy function, there's always a degree of thinking about the future. And as a consequence, foresight really can have many different purposes within organizations as well. Sometimes it's about risk, trying to understand what future risks are, emerging risks shaping a business and what you could do about it. A lot of times it's about opportunity, 
trying to understand how a market or a sector or region is changing and then identifying what the areas of opportunity are within that. And sometimes it's about kind of, you know, a shared dialogue and a shared exploration and a shared understanding of where our world is heading. So there's both hard metrics and, if you like, softer metrics that are often attached to this type of work. I really wanted to to start at the beginning with a question that is simple, but perhaps not easy, <laughs> as you mentioned, because I think oftentimes people take the future for granted. And what I mean by that is to say, many organizations will say to themselves, well, of course, we're concerned about the future. We're concerned about, you know, making sure that we know we're serving our customers and that we're growing and there's opportunities and, you know, all of that language. Like it's common to see that either talked about in popular press or written about in statements, financial statements and and what have you, you know, we're a future facing organization. Mm. And what I've actually seen a little bit more readily, however, is that people aren't as much engaged in determining potential plausible futures as much as they are interested in maintaining our present into the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of a status quo conversation. And what I've seen from your work is that you try to not do that. So it's not as common as I think people might think, you know, like the thoughtfulness of identifying foresight, I think is actually quite unique. Yeah, there's a few things in there, I guess. The first point to make is that Of course, as individuals and as organizations, we are often driven by priorities. Uh, And if you're, you know, a business in a certain sector and you're facing a certain crisis or a certain opportunity point, it is very, very easy to focus on the here and now because the here and now is what determines our, you know, our bottom line, our profitability. It's certainly in the kind of in the short term. This is partly the reason why organizations fail because you probably can't argue that organizations are at one point full of people that don't understand change it's much more about the ability to see deal with and incorporate that change in a kind of in a meaningful way and so there's something about if you like the adaptive capacity of organizations so how much are organizations actually able to adapt and change over time at what pace and what is actually required to achieve that adaptive capacity and if we then think about kind of arab as an an organization Yes, foresight plays a role in that, but there's, of course, many other kind of structural and cultural and historical components that determine that. One factor, for example, is that we are trust-owned organizations, so there's some degrees of so-called employee ownership in there, if you like. We're not on the stock market. We're not driven by the needs of our external stakeholders. As a consequence, we can reinvest in ourselves, and as a consequence of that, we are very democratic organization where a lot of decision-making is down to the individual, individual teams, and that means that inside the organization, a lot of the futures and the direction of the individual is determined by the individual themselves. And that creates a lot of personal freedom. And as a consequence, it creates a lot of opportunity for exploration, growth, doing something new and pushing forward. And so I think because of that and because of the way, you know, perhaps we also invest in research funding and the way we invest in foresight, there is a relatively high adaptive capacity within our organization. In other sectors and in other organizations, that's done slightly differently. You know, some businesses, if you're, for example, a chemical company, 
you know that your future bottom line is going to be driven by innovating and developing new products and bringing those new products to market. And as a consequence of that ingrained need for innovation as part of your business model, you might approach innovation and adaptive capacity in a much more structured way. So at Arab, it's a bit more of a cultural thing, I would argue, and driven by the individual. In the chemical company, it might be driven by processes or specialist units that lead on innovation or gateways for ideas that then get pushed into product development that then get pushed to kind of marketing and development teams. And so in the context of foresight there again, there's then also various different roles for team and a capacity like mine in enabling that ecosystem of innovation, enabling that ecosystem of change. But really, it's down to this idea of adaptive capacity, I think, which has a lot of grounding in evolutionary concepts, of course, this kind of change over time, constant change, and the need to adapt to changing market environments when it comes to organizations, for example. And, you know, one of the things that I found very interesting was that, you know, there's a key distinction that's made in when you're thinking about the future between a predictive way of thinking about the future, having X number of bullet points that we're charting to say, this is where we will be versus a, a concept of the future that I think is more infinite in the sense that we're dealing with what is, you know, plausible, potential, viable futures rather than strict predictive kind of thoughts or aspirations. So I want to give you an opportunity with that as sort of a frame to kind of walk through why it seems like the plausibility way of thinking has been more ingrained in the culture rather than the predictive. And maybe what are some tools that make one way a little bit more effective versus another? That's a great question, Philip. Let me start with a comment on the kind of the prediction angle, because mm -hmm. um, there is often the idea of, you know, the future cannot be predicted, right? That's a kind of like a common thing that people would say. And yet that is only partially true, because if we think about the big trends shaping our world, such as climate change and aging population, for example, they are driven by long-term evolutionary changes, which are actually relatively stable over time, unless you've got major wildcards like a pandemic, which you know could kind of massively shift where we're going. But in general, if you look, for example, at population dynamics, we can have a relatively good view of what the population profile of a country will look like in 10, 20, or 30 years, because we already know who is there right now, what their kind of expected life expectancy is, and what the kind of, you know, the general trend for the birth rate is. So for some trends, there is a degree of opportunity to predict. For others, it's much harder. So in that sense, not all trends are created equal. And if you think about kind of technology trends and consumer trends, they are much harder to predict because they have multiple cultural, evolutionary, environmental influences that are just difficult to get a sense of. While the more stable megatrends are actually, we are actually able to predict them. You are absolutely right, though, in saying that it is much more about kind of plausible alternatives in the work we do and exploring plausibilities than it is about prediction. Absolutely, that is the case. And there's multiple ways to consider why that is important. The kind of the first comment on that is, I guess, that the future is in many ways shaped by the stories we tell today. And there's a bit of a degree of this idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy in there. So the more we talk about a certain type of future and the more we talk about something happening, the higher the likelihood of it happening because people take actions or take note or make certain decisions based on the conversations they had. And so, again, the future is shaped by the conversations we have today. And as a consequence, you know, thinking about 
for example, positive plausible futures can be a contributor towards shaping those conversations. And as a consequence, can be a contribution towards increasing the probability that that future that we're talking about will actually happen. So as a consequence, the team and, and we at Arab have always been had quite a strong focus on, if you like, positive futures or desirable futures, because those are the stories we want to tell. The other thing that we know is that if we think about the future from today into kind of a given point in time, I guess, the cone of the possible always increases. And so, you know, there's a certain degree of possibility that certain things can happen tomorrow. There's a wider degree of possibility that certain things may happen within 2040. So the cone of the possible always increases and is a cone, if you like. However, it is still a finite space. You know, there's not an unlimited range of possibility because, of course, the future is determined by existing cultural context, you know, existing geological realities and, 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 and. And so what we're really trying to do is to explore that plausible and possible future space and then to talk about, okay, you know, what is the most likely future within that space? What is the most preferable future within that space? And what is perhaps a less desirable future within that space? And then to explore, okay, what do these different worlds look like? And what consequences can we draw from that in terms of the decisions we make today? Because, you know, I guess that's another important point to, to close on for this bit is foresight and futures thinking is not just about the future. It's about making better decisions today. So we're trying to influence, of course, you know, the choices, the, the conversations, the decisions we make in the present in order to enable us to move to that, you know, more desirable future. This is going to be a, a little bit of, of a spitball in terms of what you just said made me think about something else. So this is not a prepared question. So there might be a little bit of a ramble as I lead into it. But That's fine. Because I love the visual representation of the cone that gives us these kind of potential or plausible futures. And I thought it was interesting that you said the, the further out we go, the cone gets bigger. And I'm curious about that. I want to perhaps push back on it a little bit, only because maybe I'm just, just the moment of time that I'm in. It could, it could <laughs> be all of the things swirling around. But you know, friends who talk to me offline, one of the things that they'll hear me say often is that though not prone to cynicism, one of the things that challenges me is that I feel our capacity to enact maybe that big part of the cone actually seems to be shrinking. What I'm getting at is that the cone could be bigger on the outside, but yet our capacity to reach those outside seems to get smaller, right? And this came up in a previous conversation, for example. But that's, yeah, that's based on your perception of what should be in the cone, right? Yeah, definitely. It's a cone, it's a yeah. Phil McKenzie cone <laughs> Cone reality, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'll just give an example of an American example. Mm. You know, you're sitting in the UK, I'm in the United States. We just had an election, and people will say, like, oh man, this is election is kind of reclaimed democracy and got us back on track. And, you know, we're, you know, the person that's the focal point of everything that's wrong is now removed and on and on and on. And okay, that's fine. But then when I look at the scope of what was discussed in that context, it's actually very small, right? And so that's what I'm talking about, is that if given the, the scale and the scope of the challenges, it seems like a lot of our capacity is 
maybe not regressing, but let's say I'm <laughs> I'm not encouraged <laughs> that we have the capacity to rise to the challenges. So I'm curious, does the cone, in keeping in mind is my cone, right? Does Is there a way to build capacity? Or maybe you don't see the capacity as much of an issue as, as I do. I'm just curious about that. And it just came up in the moment we were kind of talking. No, no, that's good. I mean, yeah, this is getting very philosophical, but I guess that's oh, good. Oh, man, I, li- I um, live in the philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first thing to say about that, I guess, is that our perception of the future as our perception of the present is, you know, is shaped by our unique individual brains, which have been shaped by our own experience of the world over many years. And as a consequence, you know, all of us approach these type of questions and these kind of conversations, no matter what topic is from our unique angle, and there will be always, you know, some kind of unique flavor to it. Partially, I guess that's also, you know, the aim of foresight and futures thinking to also be a unifying process so that people can talk better about the same things that matter to all of us and kind of generate a common understanding of the future. I mean, the way you kind of define capacity for us to respond, of course, again, depends on what you focus your investigation on or what you focus your future cone on. Because if you, for example, let's talk about kind of climate change for a second as an example. If you assume that you're building a set of future scenarios on climate change, you could, you know, rightly start to think that, well, you know, we've got a certain proportion of carbon particles in the atmosphere already. As a consequence, certain scenarios are out of the window because, you know, we've gone past the point of no return. So it depends a little bit on your starting point, I would argue. So what is the starting point of your investigation and how how realistic do you, as a consequence, make the future option space? And the second is kind of how radical do you want to go with your thinking? Right, because you could quite easily develop a set of scenarios around climate change that are based on kind of conservative estimates of how society might be able to respond and the solutions we might be bringing online, and and and. Or you could go much more radical and say, okay, there might be a scenario in here where we develop massive, affordable, environmentally friendly approaches to carbon capture and storage as a consequence. You know, we can have a very, very different pathway towards dealing with our climate crisis. So it depends a little bit how you frame the conversation, what your starting point is, and crucially also what you're trying to achieve with it. Because scenarios and investigations into the future always have to have quite a clear purpose in order to be effective. And there is many a cases where you might find organizations, for example, embarking on an investigation in the future without a clear understanding of why they're doing it. And those are typically projects that uh, disappoint because if you don't have a clear idea of what you're trying to achieve, you're often lacking the anchor points within your organization that you're actually trying to influence or change or link into or whatever. So for an example of that might be where there was a clear anchor point is, you know, we worked for a big energy company years ago that was interested in exploring the future of the energy market. And this was a European company and they specialized in selling the conventional component of power plants which is essentially the turbines and then whether you have kind of like a, you know a gas powered or, or nuclear or whatever or coal attached to that doesn't really matter but their business was performing extremely well and their revenues were up and they were doing really well in their respective markets but their ceo had an inkling and had kind of a feeling that is not guaranteed to continue over the coming years and so He commissioned us to do a set of scenarios about disruptive trends and scenarios for the future of the energy market that would really make his group of executives 
think about plausible alternatives to the current experience that they were having, that their market was doing great and they didn't have any competitive pressures and they were doing absolutely fine. And so we developed a range of very disruptive scenarios. One, for example, was about the rapid you know, diffusion and price drops in renewable energy. One was about the emergence of new competitors from East Asia. And another one was about, for example, a radical shift in energy efficiency. So moving away from this idea of producing more energy to becoming more efficient. And it created a very, very different strategic dialogue within that organization. And as a consequence of that project, they decided to develop a new office and a new capability within East Asia so they could understand and monitor that market better, both in terms of market opportunities and kind of competitors. And they decided to diversify much more into renewables and kind of energy efficiency. Because, you know, just a few years after the project, most of the things that we have been talking about in the scenario somehow came into play. So it wasn't that one scenario happened, but it was the fact that elements of each extreme scenario started to happen. And as a consequence, they as an organization were better prepared. So competitive pressure from East Asia with uh, manufacturers there that were undercutting, if you like, kind of Western providers of this technology massively increased. And as a consequence of that scenario, having been played through at the executive level, they were able to respond in a bit more of an agile manner. So that's an example of a scenario process very closely aligned to the strategic objectives of of a client and as a consequence working quite well. In other instances, that sometimes isn't the case because there's an expectation for answers without really knowing what kind of answers you're looking for, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And I love that example because you highlighted that this is also, it's not that any one thing happened, but bits and pieces of things happen. Right. And that really gives the opportunity to, to lead into this idea of, of nuance, like building in context and nuance in, in the foresight process. Right. And, mm-hmm. and you mentioned in a previous question that, you know, we were getting philosophical, which I think whenever I hear that, I know we're going in a good direction because I think to a certain extent, some of what you're thinking through within these scenarios does lend itself to context and nuance. And those can lean into sometimes philosophical for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. So how do you account for walking through some of those notions? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we are all dealing with increasingly is complexity as organizations and as individuals. And that's happening on kind of multiple levels. The first level is that much of the kind of innovation and change that we're trying to achieve in the world at the moment is complex problems. The easy solutions have all been found about, you know, how we can speak to each other from the UK and US in real time. That's done. (laughs) But, you know, climate change, racial equity, you know, all of the big issues that we're facing at the moment, aging populations, uh, automation, they're complex highly connected issues and challenges and that degree of complexity then somehow needs to be broken down and dealt with and that's one of the things i guess that is another component of foresight another angle to complexity of course is that we are starting to know more and more all the time so while the kind of problems have gotten more complex we are also getting wiser as a kind of collective in understanding what really matters Now, knowing more doesn't necessarily mean that solving the problem is easier. In some cases, it could actually make it harder. I'll give you another example from my industry. Typically, in perhaps decades past, if you had to design a new building, 
there would be something about the aesthetics of the building. There would be something about the function of the building, and it had to be structurally sound. So there was a few things that we knew um, mattered to building design. If you think about building design today, it's about the role of that building in the wider urban system. It's about ensuring that that building enhances the productivity, health, and well-being of its staff. It's about ensuring that the materials used in that building perhaps you know, follow the principles of a circular economy and are recycled. It's about minimizing embedded carbon and, 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 and. So the requirements for what good looks like have increased massively with an increased understanding of what good actually means. And, you know, that's just one example within building design, and it's, I guess, the same everywhere else. So problems have gotten more complex. Our understanding of good or great has become more complex. And as a consequence, we need tools and processes that help us navigate this complexity and help us identify priorities. And so often in our work and the work we do at Foresight, that's another kind of key aim or another key objective. One thing that we do quite a bit, for example, is develop so-called visions for new capital projects. This could be a university that is designing a new campus building. And so typically there's a team within that client who is responsible with bringing this new university building online. And there would be a typical process where they might hire an architect and the architect might come up with a vision and then that building might be put into reality. But often the thing that a client like that, an organization like that should really do first is to say, okay, from a strategic perspective, what will be the role of that building for our organization? What does the future of learning look like? And what does that mean for future building design? What will be the future profile of our students and how do we accommodate their needs into this structure? And so increasingly, we're trying to encourage people to think about the kind of the priorities and needs and expectations around a project much earlier than they would perhaps have done in the future and in a much more granular way. And that is, again, about understanding complexity, setting priorities, and then developing a common vision so that when you then come to actually hiring an architect or hiring someone to build the building, you as an organization have a much deeper understanding of what you actually want and need based on you know your understanding of future trends and your understanding of, of associated priorities. So it's often about that, you know, helping others understand their future context, helping set priorities, and then developing a clear vision of where we want to go. I love that we kind of got into the building design example and the, the layers of how we're thinking about space is so important. And it actually allows me to back into another question I had which is, as we think about the future, again, commonly, not necessarily against among practitioners, but commonly, what happens is that we're realizing that our thoughts are only looking forward. They're not really thinking about the past. And building design can fit into that as well, because we're putting buildings inside existing spaces. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about the context of building and creating within already static relationships. It's interesting the point you made up about, or you mentioned about building design, because it really is a perfect segue into a question that I have already prepared about historical perspective and the past relative to how we think about the future. Because I think your example about the complexity of thinking about building design is so spot on, but also 
with physical space that we have around us, we're often putting things into existing infrastructures and sort of the capabilities of what's around us will impact to a certain extent, maybe perhaps what we can build or design or create. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about how you factor in the past in a historical infrastructure way, even as you think about the capabilities of design in the future. Mm, Great question. I mean, we always say that change is constant and context is variable. So context massively influences everything we do. And contextualization is absolutely critical to getting foresight work right. And in many ways, it's, you know, it's the art of good foresight is good contextualization, because it's actually relatively easy to identify and map all of the trends that are shaping our future. Anyone can talk about that. It's much harder to determine what they mean for us. And of course, if you then talk about history and historical context, that has various different angles to it as well. There's, you know, climatic history and context, there's geographic and geological and cultural history and context. And that all plays a massive role in determining, like you said, what, you know, what can or or cannot be done. So contextualizing change is absolutely critical because cities vary, organizations vary, um, individuals vary. The change that we are shaped by might be similar, but the implications for us will always be different. And so we spend a lot of time in our work contextualizing what we do. So, for example, we did a project for kind of mail and parcel logistics provider in Asia. And we explored the various trends shaping the future of mail and parcel logistics and what that would mean for the development of a new airmail distribution center. You know, which sounds kind of curious. Why would you need to think about the future of airmail distribution? But once you kind of understand the context of the organization as a kind of national provider of mail services and the context of the wider economic development of the region, it starts to kind of lead to some really, really interesting insights. And so I'll give you a few examples of that. So first of all, being kind of a national mail and parcel provider means that there's a remit beyond the pure distribution of mail and parcels to, if you like, support the success of the wider nation and support the success of the wider economy. And so if, for example, the overall economic policy goal is to build and expand the pharmaceutical sector, then perhaps this mail and parcel logistics provider needs to have capabilities to store pharmaceuticals at extremely low temperatures, support the overall supply chain integrity, and to enable the distribution of drugs and materials associated with pharmaceutical production, which the organization didn't have in place and which was actually you know, a policy goal of place we're talking about. So very quickly, you start to see that if you look into the wider context of an organization and what it's trying to achieve, there's opportunities to translate that into building design requirements. In this case, for example, cold storage for medicines. Another example in this case is that the Bay Area of South China is incredibly active in the production of electronic devices or components for electronic devices. And they often contain lithium-ion batteries, which are classified as kind of dangerous goods. And as a consequence of this, mail and parcel provider wants to enable or serve customers within that economic category, then they need to have the ability to store, handle and distribute dangerous goods much more than they have had in the past. 
And so those are kind of economic drivers. And of course, there's a general need for health and well-being in the workspace. So that impacts, you know, again, building design in terms of access to natural light, then more ergonomic setups. Then there's the whole shift in, in actually the type of stuff we send. You know, we used to send loads and loads of letters. Letters are kind of dead almost. Most of us now receive our invoices and kind of bank letters and stuff via email. But we send way more tiny parcels for, you know, toothpaste ordered on Amazon or something ridiculous like that. There's just a huge volume. And typically, and as a consequence of that, again, we need to design facilities for mail and parcel logistics in a very different way because you're dealing with different types of shapes and weights and stuff parcels than we have in the past. So it's very, very interesting to really explore these contextual things because, of course, again, you know, mail and parcel logistics globally is driven by e-commerce and new consumption patterns in a much more globalized way when it comes to how and where we shop. But the specifics of how this organization had to respond to that trend were much more driven by the location, the economy they were part, the policy objectives of the nation that they're supporting, and the wider kind of sector uh, and development in, in the region. It's um, fascinating that I think that example was really good because it starts in one place and then broadens out the many different potential like moving parts, sectors, stakeholders that can be engaged, but also started with a cultural perspective of, yes, the service does mail, but its connection to a larger national identity and what is important within that identity perhaps supersedes the service that it provides. And I think that's a perfect way to kind of ask this next question, which is to kind of make a distinction as to how many different types of people are engaged in these types of conversations. And what I mean by that is, I think for the past, at least my time in academics, in my early part of my professional career, there was very much a focus and attention to the idea of the specialist. The, the person who did the one thing, and when you needed that one thing, you went to him or her. And as you describe and walk through that process, and as I think about foresight more broadly, it seems that having a wide range of people who also in turn have a ensuing wide range of skills is a benefit as compared to a specialist. Are you seeing that as well, where there's maybe not a strict dichotomy, but there is more of an openness to a generalist perspective versus a deep specialist perspective? Keeping in mind, that's not always going to be the case. No, and it's a very interesting question in the context of our firm as well, because, you know, we're an engineering firm. And so we are full of specialists and incredible minds, you know, someone who knows everything about glass and someone who knows everything there is to know about lighting design and so forth. So the team operates with an ecosystem of extreme specialization to a degree. And yet there's something about, you know, again, complexity and this idea of thinking in systems and so forth, which requires multidisciplinarity to solve problems. And so in many ways, there's something about us as a team being that generalist and that integrator across multiple specialisms. And then, of course, like you say, there's also something about individuals having perhaps more of a generalist capability. So if you think about my team for a second, 
it's a highly diverse team. So we have kind of service designers, UX designers, graphic designers, rocket scientists, sociologists, physicists. I'm a biologist by training. So that diversity in terms of background, in terms of kind of also culture, age, ethnicity, sex, we have a quite a hyper-diverse team. And that is to our benefit because we can approach topics that we're working on from multiple different angles. In terms of our role in the firm, we are often also tasked with bringing various areas of expertise together. So if you ask, okay, what are actually the, you know, the stakeholders that get involved in the project? You know, when clients ask us, well, who should we involve, invite to this workshop? We always say, it would be great to have someone at least from every business unit or someone from every part of the organization. And so because you get these different perspectives, you get the different angle. And like I said earlier, most of the problems we're dealing with require a holistic and systems-based approach. And so these multiple viewpoints become very, very important towards, first of all, understanding the problem space properly, but then also kind of thinking about solutions in a more creative way. So it's not uncommon for us to design a workshop and for it to be the first time that different business units spoke to each other inside an organization. That happens quite a lot because in reality, many, many organizations are still quite siloed. Uh, Within those silos, they can be competitive. And as a consequence, this kind of idea of you know, working together and collaborating inside of businesses is still not always a given, which again is a problem when it comes to adaptive capacity. And which is again, why I think some organizations in the longer term kind of fail to adapt and as a consequence lose market and sector relevance. So at the team level, for sure, at the kind of interaction level, for sure, there's lots and lots about multidisciplinary, bringing a broad range of stakeholders in, trying to be as diverse as possible. Of course, you know, there's also limits to that in terms of the organizations that we work with and the people that we have access to, and we actively have to seek diversity. And there's much more work to be done there, for sure. And so that's something that we're trying to get better at. And then there's also something about us as individuals. And so we often talk about this idea of T-shaped people. That's been something that's been spoken about a lot, deep technical expertise, but then also this kind of generalist ability. We are now talking much more about key-shaped people, if that makes sense. So kind of multiple spikes coming down of varying length. And so, you know, you might be a structural engineer that also has good understanding of carbon policy coupled with a little bit of insight into material science coupled with landscape architecture. And so just kind of encouraging people to build expertise in multiple areas because Various books on this, but there's one book called Range, and I can't recall the author now, but it's quite well known. And that talks about you know the role of generalists and particularly the role of generalists and people outside of an industry in problem solving and in solving problems that previously couldn't be cracked by existing groups of experts. And so fostering and building those key shaped people is, again, I think, a critical component towards innovation, towards solving complex problems and towards um, adaptive capacity in organizations. You know, it's, I want to get you out on a couple more questions and then we're going to go into the final two segments of the show because yep. I'm dangerous because I can go on forever and I don't want to do that and, and risk your time. But I want to pose a quick question, which is I've experienced this in my work with clients. And I'm curious if you've seen this in your practice where the organization or the client comes into the situation with a sort of preconceived notion of what they want the end result to be. And then they're using the foresight slash futures process to confirm it. (laughs) And I'm curious if you've had that experience a little bit, because in my time Mm -hmm. it's impacted the scope of inquiry for me. So I'm curious about for you. 
We do get inquiries by organizations that, for example, have a product and are trying to understand how successful that product could be in a new market. That does happen. And I guess that's partially a validation exercise where you could go down the route of, okay, you know, we're trying to validate your perception of what the market is and we're supporting your worldview. But I would say that that is actually, in my experience and the type of work that I've done, really, really rare. And maybe that's the luxury of the type of clients we have or the interactions we have. But we often start projects with quite an open mind of where we might be heading and actually very little understanding of what the outcomes look like for better or for worse. And that's not always easy. And I think in that context, it's less about kind of knowing what the outputs will be. And it's much more about really trying to understand what the client is trying to achieve or what we are trying to achieve. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about that. What is the purpose of this investigation? What are you really trying to do? What problems are you really grappling with? You know, is this purely about design of a new airmail distribution center or is this about the future of, you know, your local economy? Is this really about designing a new campus or is this about rethinking the learning experience? And so getting to the kind of, and even that can be a difficult question to answer sometimes, but Reminding yourself of that question as you go through the process, I think, is absolutely critical towards achieving something that is right. And then there's kind of second and third degree you know, levels to that. So you know, if you're working for a client, you also have to understand what they're trying to achieve within their organization in terms of the people that they report to and what the expectations of those people that they report to actually want because you know we've had examples where projects have failed because we've done a great job for our direct client, but they couldn't then take that and incorporate that into their you know ecosystem within their organization and so there's a lot in there about really understanding the client need understanding what outcomes we're trying to achieve as a team and really focusing on that and reminding ourselves of that question as we go along and that third degree is a huge degree Mm. um i want to ask you one more question and then we're going to the final two segments of the show which is much shorter and this one i've been kind of mulling about a little bit. In the work that I reviewed prior to our conversation, there was this idea of weak signals versus megatrends. And it sounds on surface that these are clearly two opposite types of ideas. But I started thinking about a little bit more in terms of the balance and the distinguishing between the two. And I'm curious if they are as opposite as they might appear. And the reason why I frame it that way is you know, the megatrends in my mind, at least, are the things that are happening and they exist that they're so long in their scope, they sort of become normalized, that we're not thinking about them per se. Like if we say, oh, the population's getting older, that could be considered a megatrend, but mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm living in that as it's happening. So it's sort of like air. And then weak signals are just that, right? Like they're not tightly correlated to what's going on. They could be, but not always. Mm-hmm. And so they're also invisible in a way, right? Or again, yeah, I mean, I'm curious about that. Yeah. In many ways, it's kind of, you know, language and definitions and tools that help us make sense of the conversations we're having as a professional practice when it comes to foresight, if you like. I think, first of all, yes, megatrends are these things that are happening in the background all the time, but there's still some quite fundamental decisions that we can draw from them, again, if we find paths towards contextualization. So we did some work with a provider of large metro network underground system provider, so mass transit, essentially. 
uh, to understand what the aging population could mean for them. And so, you know, there they have rapidly aging population. Their existing station network is rampacked with people, very few escalators, very few lifts uh, as a consequence. And they know that in the future they need to upgrade their stations because there will be a greater proportion of people with kind of mobility needs that might be moving slower through the stations. That has an impact on station operations because it might take longer for to get in and out of trains. As a consequence, the frequency of trains might need to change. The proportion of elderly people that have subsidized fares might shift as a consequence. Their revenue model might change. So you can start to take a trend like the aging population actually get to some pretty significant strategic impact for their decisions today in terms of you know new stations they might be designing or their overall investment strategy. Yeah, so that's megatrends, and, and you can think about them in, in quite specific terms once you get into it. The weak signals are interesting because we tend to see weak signals as an early opportunity to identify trends. So you know, if we get multiple weak signals within a certain area, it starts to indicate a pattern. And so you know, we talk about weak signals as one of those things that we can seek out to make better sense of the world. And they also play to this notion, this quote by William Gibson, which is, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So by looking at what's happening in other parts of the world, we can get a better sense of the trends that might be coming in our way in our part of the world. So, you know, you can go to China, for example, and find hundreds of weak signals about how e-commerce might work or how, you know, mobile payment is changing. And that might give you a bit of a clue on how that might be shifting in your own markets once that kind of that comes across. So we see them in many ways as these kind of like these little kernels of insight that might point to larger patterns. And of course, you're absolutely right in saying often those larger patterns and these weak signals somehow connect because, you know, it's all part of an ecosystem of change. And so, again, a lot of it is about, you know, terminology. And when we have a conversation with someone, we talk about weak signals, we often bring in case studies or exemplars or something quite specific, you know, this organization has done this, or here's this new payment system over here, or, you know, here's this incredible facade system that we've seen. So we use them as kind of real life indications of, of how the world is changing versus, like you said, the big mega trends, which are often statistics and facts and projections, and they're quite hard to grasp. You know, they're not, you can show a picture of an old person, but that doesn't reflect, you know, no, not at all. The proportion of elderly people in your organization. Yeah. yeah. Especially in the moment we are now, where we're, we're seeing as the pandemic continues, sort of the effects that it's, it's happening disproportionately on older communities, more vulnerable communities, communities right. of right. color, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, um, very relevant and prescient work at all levels. You know, I'll just share one fast little thing before we get to off the dome. There's this, um, you know, living in New York, there's this thing that we all kind of grew up with. If you lived in an apartment in New York, that was like, we called it like, you know, hood heat or like highly super hot apartments where the <laughs> radiators would just be like right, on blast right. all the time. And, you know, you can't control your heat. The landlord did that, right? And, and long story short, I found out that a lot of that was because of the pandemic of the time, early 1920s, as they start to build taller, bigger buildings, they wanted to create heat that would be really hot inside where you could have your windows open on the, <laughs> at the same time, mm. right? So it would be so hot in the apartment, it actually encouraged you to open the windows because ventilation was so important. And I never knew that. I just thought my landlords wanted us to be really, really hot all the time. So it's, it's one of those things where the infrastructure <laughs> has become even more relevant as we kind of face similar circumstances here 
in New York, yeah. that hood heat is even more and more important. So it's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting story, but I mean, it's, it's slightly different. But, you know, the technical link to what you're just saying is that there's a huge issue with air conditioning units in places like Singapore and because they're running all the time. And so they're supposed to be cooling the interior, but they're heating the exterior because you've got all this exhaust heat. So it's interesting how the you know the, the two things relate, I guess. But that's absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm digressing now. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's Singapore is one of my favorite places. So it's, it's interesting to, to see that type of work and engineering and thought process. You know, but I want to get us to the last two segments of the show yeah. to make sure I get you out somewhat on time. And the first is off the dome, which is just a, a series of quick questions to kind of get your first impression. These are no pressure, designed to be just quirky and fun. So the first one, I have three of them for you. Cool. The first one is, obviously we've talked a lot about building spaces and design. What do you think is the most important thing when thinking about that building design process? I think embedded carbon going forward. You know, we have to get better at understanding how much carbon goes into a building and out of a building when we refurbish it and also the operation of it. That has to get much better. Now, you know, we've, we're all in, in the middle of pandemic in some way, shape or form. And it's been a time that people have used that, this opportunity to learn new things, to bake bread, to do a, a variety of things that yeah, people have yeah. talked about. If there is one skill that you could instantaneously either learn or have, what would that skill be? Holy moly. I've, I mean, personally, I've started fly fishing, yoga and baking during the pandemic. So I've done a fair bit. So I'm not sure whether I <laughs> need another skill in that arsenal. But I mean, for me personally, I've really been trying to get a better balance between my work and private life. And I think I don't know if there's a, a magical skill for that. But kind of having the ability to live a balanced life is, I think, a critical skill. I'm trying to work on that in various ways, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> so we can maybe compare notes on how we're doing with that journey yeah, as 2021 yes, yeah. goes on. And the final off the dome question, and this one I've asked guests a few times because it's become pretty popular and I've gotten good feedback on the question. So it's going to be one that my listener, my regular listeners have heard before. If you have an opportunity to travel back in time and meet your ancestors or to travel to the future and meet your descendants, which would you choose? Oh, God, that's a good one. Um, I think I would have to travel to the future, I think, just because I would be so curious about what the world would look like and whether we have managed or not to overcome some of the challenges that we're trying to solve now. So, you know, with my job being very future-focused all the time, I would just be curious about how right or wrong or whatever we managed to be, yeah. It's awesome. And thanks for those. And the final section of the show is called The Drop. Yep. And The Drop is just a recommendation, something that you know we want to point our listeners to, to check out. And I have a drop prepared and I'm hoping, fingers crossed, you do too. Um, so do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I can go first. So my drop is a book called Entangled Life by Marilyn uh, Sheldrake. And I have to admit that I've only gotten about halfway through but it's all about fungi and mushrooms which <laughs> sounds like kind of curious but you know the title is how fungi make our worlds change our minds and shape our futures and it's just been incredible i mean i didn't know for example that fungi are much more closely related to animals than they are to plants 
which was a very interesting fact. And then it talks about kind of networks and sensing and systems and ecosystems and integration and how fungi really shape all aspects of our life that I found incredibly interesting, in particular at a time when our lives are so deeply impacted by something minute and tiny that we cannot see. So um resonated with me and I would recommend the book. It's a fascinating read for anyone who's, yeah, I guess, interested in ecology, but also in kind of the broader things that shape our natural and man-made world. That is an awesome drop. I've heard and seen people talking about the book a little bit. Right. So I think I'm going to count this as one of my weak signals that I'm, I'm seeing it <laughs> like I'm seeing it in places that I, I don't even remember. Yeah, right, But right. the minute you started describing it to me, I was like, oh, I got to get this book. So yes. this is like the proof of how this stuff works, that <laughs> weak signals are meaningful. And I agree with you, like the premise that you just described is so important. So I love that drop. My drop is actually an artist, big music fan. We kind of talked about that a little bit. And there's an artist that I've been listening to quite frequently. And his name is Barty Strange. And he released an album in the fall called Live Forever. And it's just this really interesting mix of different kinds of sounds and styles. I can't say it's wholly unique in any one way, but it definitely takes me back to a period in music that I really love with bands like TV on the radio and Block Party, but yet it has like some soul and R&B sensibilities to it. It's just a really interesting record and I really enjoy listening to it. So I think that's a a good recommend. And again, it's Barty Strange and his album is called Live Forever. So that's my drop. Sounds awesome. Yeah. So, you know, this has been great. I appreciate the time and the attention and and joining me on this episode of The Deep Dive. Cool. Thanks, Philip. It's been really great and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having Joseph Hargrave join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.